Praise God. Thank you, Lord, for your promises. Um, I'm going to share from uh, the Gospel of John here in just a moment. But uh, the question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, we, we have an answer for that, don't we? He's the Son of the living God. He's the Savior of the world. He's the Redeemer. He's the Healer. He was asked, though, more than once by people that walked up to him and says, Who are you? Now, they weren't asking him what his name was. They knew what his name was. It was Jesus of Nazareth. That's not what they were asking. They were asking, Who are you really? And, and listen, Nazareth attached to his name was not complimentary. You just ask Nathaniel, says, Nazareth? Messiah's come from Nazareth? Right. Have you heard of anything good coming out of Nazareth? That's from a future apostle. But you, uh, you know, in, in our day and time, this is going to be over some of your head. Others are going to know what I'm saying. In our day and time, let's just say in the 50s, Jesus of Phoenix City. Okay, see, most of you don't get that. Because in the 50s, that was one of the most corrupt towns in the state of Alabama. I mean, the law enforcement had to go in there. The, the political corruption was off the wall. And it was like a stigma. That, that name, Phoenix City, was a stigma. It's not that now, but back then, if, if that was attached to your name, that was not a compliment. And that's what Nazareth was. It, it was like a Phoenix City. It was not respected at all. And here's Jesus of Nazareth. But they were asking him, not his given name, but, you know, in some ways, sometimes they were asking, who in the world do you think you are? Who gave you permission to do this? Who gave you the authority to do this? Who are you? You're stepping over boundaries that you have no right to step over. Who's, who gave you permission to do that? They were constantly, they were troubled by him. He, he just didn't pay attention to the, to the tape, the police tape or whatever. <laughs> he just stepped over the boundaries and he did things that, troubled people. He healed people. He calmed storms. But his name, Yeshua, in Hebrew, means the Lord is salvation. It was a common name. So, you know, uh, I remember when the Alou brothers were playing baseball, and, and one of them was Jesus Alou, and I was like, it just seems weird that Jesus is, <laughs> somebody has Jesus as their name. Not many people name their children Jesus, do they? But there's a lot of them name named their children the same name. We have a grandson named Jesus. We just don't pronounce it. It's Joshua. It's Yeshua. Jesus is a more Greek rendering of the Lord is salvation. Remember when uh, the angel said, You will call his name Jesus because he will save. Savior was all wrapped up in that name. He will save his people from their sins. The, the very name had Savior or salvation right in the middle of it. So for Muslims, they cannot accept the identity that we ascribe to Jesus. Now, they believe that Jesus was a prophet named Isa. That's their rendering in Arabic, Isa. And I've had some wonderful conversations with Muslim men. And just, just to talk, not to 
argue. It could, it can always turn into an argument. But you just have to realize that the Quran's view of Jesus and the biblical view of Jesus can never fit together. It's like oil and water. Because they say that Jesus cannot be the Son of God because God cannot have a son. That's their logic. They also do not believe that Jesus died on the cross. They believe that's, a, that's made up. That somebody else, possibly even Judas, they just kind of um, surmise that it really wasn't Jesus. And the reason being is that they still believe Jesus is alive in his body right now. That he didn't die. He was translated into heaven. I'm not making this up. You can go and research it. He will come back one day. Muhammad taught this. He will come back one day and, and preach Quran and be killed, and he'll be buried next to Muhammad in Medina, Saudi Arabia. They have, they have a spot right there next to Muhammad for Isa, for Jesus. So it's not like they just deny that he existed. They, they just have a different identity. of What a different identity. So um, I, I, I wish to, um, let me see if I can, I, I don't normally do this, but I'll, I'll do it just to give somebody some heads up here. You might have heard uh, me refer to some podcasts I listened to, but um, uh, Eric Metaxas interviewed a Ugandan pastor. His name is Umar Melinde, and Umar was raised Muslim. He was 22 years old. He was very involved in um, Islamic uh, studies. He had memorized the entire Quran uh, and the Hadith, and uh, he heard he heard an open air preacher, and they, they normally they just block that out. But he heard that that preacher quoting from the Quran in Arabic verses that was about Jesus is mentioned over ninety times in the Quran, and he was he was mentioning verses, and one of the verses he says. In the Quran, Jesus, Isa, is called the Word of God. Isn't that interesting? And, you know, when we had Jonathan and Brittany here uh, Sunday night, I, you know, I wanted to make sure I heard that right. And he said, yes, that's one of the verses he's, re- he's ministering to Muslim people over near uh, Bangladesh in, the, in that Calcutta part of India. But, you know, they, they have the idea that Jesus is not the Jesus that we talk about. So there can never be a coming together. Um, Jesus did not die on the cross. They said someone else did. And the Quran, uh, Islamic teaching, just says that somebody else died in his place and he didn't die. So if you, if you don't have the death on the cross, what do you don't have as a result? The resurrection. And that's the whole gospel. When... Uh, Paul was writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15. He, in the early verses, he said the gospel is really this, that Jesus died on the cross according to Scripture, was buried, and was raised again according to Scripture. He said that's the gospel, and the gospel has the power of God. This man started researching what the Quran had said about Jesus, and his heart began to turn toward the message of Jesus. And one day he went and talked to the minister he had heard preaching just, to, just to, to study and, you know, hash this out about, I didn't know this, didn't know the Quran. I didn't realize the Quran was putting Jesus in such a, a place of notoriety. 
And then he came to know the Lord, and he had like 12 attempts of assassination. <coughs> Part of one of them was th- someone threw acid on his face. He's now a pastor in Uganda, and two other pastors in the area were two guys, Muslim men, who they were two of them that tried to kill him, and they, <laughs> they became Christians, and now they're pastoring. So if you want to listen to how the gospel is the power of God into salvation, wherever it is proclaimed, it just... It just doesn't sound to us like words carry inherent power to penetrate a person's soul, their spirit, their mind, even though they're taught maybe against it. You know, C.S. Lewis was one of the great, well-known atheists that came to faith in Jesus, a faith he... I just, I just can't wait for Richard Dawkins to get saved. <laughs> and I pray for him. In fact, I'll tell you one thing, the whole thing about North Korea, I pray for Kim Jong-un that he would have visions of Jesus in his sleep, that Jesus would come to the Korean leader, that Jesus died for him. We, we, we can, like, speak against him, but we ought to pray for him. We ought to pray that Jesus will show up in the night in his <coughs> dreams and, and give a vision. How about, how about that? How about the prospects of that? I don't think it was much more far-fetched for Saul of Tarsus to get saved for what he was trying to do to the church. So I want to take you to uh, John here in just a moment. Before you turn there, I'm going to ask you a question. In John chapter 3, what are the personalities that jump out to you? Who are the personalities that jump out to you in John chapter 3 before turning there? John chapter 3. Jesus and who is this conversation with? Nicodemus. Is that it? Anybody else jump out to you? I was thinking about this, and that's why I asked you a question. Because we know John 3.16. We know all this conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Except you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And you cannot enter the kingdom of God and Nicodemus is trying to figure out, whoa, what is that to be reborn? Born from above is the literal rendering of the original language. He was like, how, do, how does that work? You can't go back into your mother's womb. He says, this is, I'm talking about a spiritual birth. The spirit is different from the flesh. The spirit doesn't have the parameters that a natural birth has. It's, it's dynamic. It's eternal. And there's 21 verses dedicated to that conversation. There's 15 verses that are dedicated to a second conversation. And that begins in in chapter 3, verse 22. And I want you to follow this with me. Um, Now, Jesus finishes his conversation with Nicodemus, okay? Here's 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized now, John, was, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water, and the people were coming and being baptized. This is John Baptist. He's still having ministry. He's still baptizing people, but he's not near Jericho. He's up near this place called Salim. And John adds this. This was before John the Apostle is writing this. He said this was before John the Baptist was put in prison. Now, if you want to make this little note, 
John the Apostle is writing this probably 60 to 65 years after this happened. This is, this is the last gospel composed, is the gospel of John. So he's writing this way. So he's, he's, this all is coming back to him of these conversations. So why did, why did John the Apostle make a distinction as to where John the Baptist was baptizing and where Jesus was baptizing? I want to show you this in this PowerPoint. And this is the first slide you'll see. And I even brought a laser with me. Look at this. You ready? Wait a minute. Here we go, right there. That's Salim and Anon. This is Sea of Galilee. This is where he's baptizing. Down here, you can't see it. If you'll put the other slide up there so we can maybe get a little bit better. There's Jericho right here. This is Judea. This is... This area is Judea. This is Samaria. And up above here is Galilee. So John and his disciples are way up here. You remember it says that John baptized Jesus near Jericho. And it is from Jericho that Jesus went up into a barren mountainous region and fasted for 40 days and went hand-to-hand combat with the devil. This was down here in this, in this region down here. If you did the, uh, a mileage check, this is about 90 miles different. Now, why is that significant? Why would John the Apostle bring a distinction that these two ministry groups were this far apart? I think it makes some sense when we, you read through what is about to happen that John says Jesus is down in Judea, up near Samaria and Galilee is where John and his disciples are baptizing. Now verse 25. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. If you, you may have a different translation. It might say Jews about purification. Does your translation say something like that? Instead of ceremonial washing. It was all about the the, the purification rites, which uh, Jewish people believed in, they had rules about washing, washing before, uh, at different times during the day. And I think the argument was, we still don't get immersion. We still don't get that uh, you have to put somebody completely in the water. There's other ways to be ceremonial clean. And the Jews were arguing. And you remember that they really didn't accept John's message of that baptism was a, was a picture of repentance. That you went down into the water, you submitted to him putting you under the water. It was showing that you, you were done with your old life. You repented of what, how you were living, and now you're trusting God for the, your future, for your life. And this is why this immersion be, was developed. We don't have much idea outside of John Baptist doing this, calling people to repentance and it says, if you're really a repentant, come down in this water, be immersed to show that you're done with the way you're living your life. These Jews, our Jewish man, took exception to that. Now the very next verse says, and they came to John. Now, in, in past, I thought, it was the Jewish people arguing 
was John's disciples that turned and talked to John about what they were just arguing about. But it doesn't seem like that fits the narrative. It seems it's more likely that John's disciples are a little bit rattled by this argument. And they come asking, and they call him rabbi. I doubt if Jews would call John Baptist rabbi. They didn't even believe he was of God, okay? Jesus had asked him late in his ministry in Jerusalem, uh, I'll ask you a question. Was John's baptism of heaven or was it of human origin? And they refused for political reasons to answer. Because they said if we answered that it was from heaven, he's going to say, well, why didn't you submit to it? And if we ask, uh, it's a human origin, so we're, we're afraid of the people because they really believe that John the Baptist was a prophet. So listen, listen, make no mistake about it. John the Baptist was a popular preacher. Everybody, especially in the countryside, took him as a true prophet of God. He, was, he, he had people flocking to hear him and flocking to the water to be baptized. He's still baptizing people. And what happens in this exchange is really interesting. Um, let me take you to verse 26. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of Jordan. And when you look at this, I don't think they were meaning on the you know, east bank of Jordan is on the other end of Jordan. Because it really wouldn't have been smart to cross the river in order to baptize people. Especially it's like, hey, we're going to go to the other side, we're going to baptize over there. I, I really think the language is, is referencing that 90 miles away, Jesus is baptizing. And it's John, it, fits, it fits John's disciples more that they're a little troubled about that. That they're a little troubled that Jesus is gaining in popularity. And everybody is going his way and, and they're coming to John, they're talking about that. The one that on the other side of Jordan, the one you testified, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. And we know later that he really wasn't baptizing. It was his disciples that were baptizing. But that, here's the question. In John's reply in verse 28, well, let me just read 27 and 28. To this John replied, a person, and then he's, he's talking about himself here. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. He says, my role is restricted to what God has given me. I have a role to fill. My role is not the same as the role of Jesus. He says, heaven gave me my place. But he expands on that. He says, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. And not only did he tell his disciples that, he told everybody that, I said, well, you know, you're, you're kind of like messianic, buddy. Everybody likes you. They're flocking to you. You sure you're not the Messiah? And he, he was emphatic. In fact, some of the language here is going to reference what, is, what he first said about Jesus. You remember what he first said about Jesus? He said, I, I'm, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. I, I can't even kneel down. I don't have even the place to kneel down and take his shoes off. So that's, that's the difference. That's how great of a gap is between who he is and who I am. And he says, I am not the one, but I'm sent ahead of him. All through this statement, 
John can, it can't be any clearer. He is pointing to Jesus and confessing Jesus is the Messiah, but he takes it beyond that. This is priceless. In verse 29, he says, the bride, you know, there's, there's joy. He's talking about the bride, and we, we had the idea of bride, we're the bride, and, and Christ is the bridegroom. This was a common picture of the Messiah and the covenant people of God. The Messiah would be the bridegroom, and the covenant people of God would be the bride. Nobody does weddings better than Middle Eastern people. If you've ever been to a Middle Eastern wedding, whether it's Persian or, you know, Saudi Arabia, Israel, I got to see a wedding reception. Their weddings and celebration goes on for days. It's not like, Let's say some vows, let's have some food, and it's off we go. No, they dance, they sing, they just have multi-day celebration. And so this is, this is the picture they have of when Messiah comes. It's going to be a great celebratory thing. The covenant people of God finally become attached to the, to the promised one, the anointed one. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. And is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. He said, I am joyful that I've heard the bridegroom's voice. I know who the bridegroom is. And I know my place. My place is not his place. My place is to give recognition to him. And he says, and now it is complete. And what happens next is really profound. In verse 30, he says, he must become greater, I must become less. And I wonder how his disciples took that. You know, because of their question, they were looking for just, uh, you know, we, we got to do something. We're losing church members to that, to that new guy. What, what can we do to, to get our church membership back? You know, we, we need something. We need, we're losing people. They're going down there to him. And isn't that our reaction? Like, oh, you know, we got to do something. We got to stop the the leaking, the the exodus. But he says, this is the way it has to be. It's almost as though them being way up there in Salim and Anon and Jesus being down in the Judean countryside is reflective of the difference and the transition. It's no longer John the Baptist that's being the focus, it's Christ. And John said it has to be that way. He has to become more prominent. I have to become less prominent. He has to become greater. I have to, I have to be diminished. It's almost as though John is accepting that his, his purpose is about done. He said, I'm, you know, I don't know if he intentionally got up there and said, hey, Herod, you're not supposed to have your brother's wife. You know, the one time he stepped into politics, he gets arrested. <laughs> and then he gets beheaded because of a drunken party that they have. And Herod makes a foolish oath. But it's almost as though, I don't know if John intentionally did that, but I, I do know this. I believe that he knew his, his role was coming to a close. Interestingly, when you go and read that when he's in prison, he has, he has some anxiety about that. And he sends some of his guys 
to ask Jesus, said, um, one more time, you are the one, right? I mean, I didn't go through all this, <laughs> and you're not the one. And uh, he said, you just go back and tell him things you, you've watched here, that people are, are coming to faith and healings and miracles are taking place. You just go and tell him what you see happening around us. But it did seem like John had a little bit of concern. He didn't want to be wrong. In verse 31, he said, The one who comes from above. I'm telling you, these last few verses are priceless in John 3. They're just priceless. I've, I've read this so many times, but in, in recently, I just, it just kind of jumped off the page at me like, wow, that is so profound. John, John did something so profound. You know, because, uh, and I'll mention this when I get toward the end. Let me just read verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth, a reference to himself, belongs to the earth. He says, my, my role is right here and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. And John qualifies that the message of Jesus, regardless of the response, is from heaven. The response doesn't qualify whether it's from heaven or not. He said he is giving testimony to who he is, but people aren't accepting it. In verse 33, he says, but the ones who do accept it, it certifies that God is truthful. Now, watch this. John connects Jesus to heaven. He said, he that's from above, right? He's come from heaven. But he's about to connect Jesus to God. And those who accept the message in reality are declaring that God is true, that his message is true, that there's authenticity to the Messiah's message to Israel. Verse 34, for the one, for the, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives his spirit without limit, with, with no limitation on the anointing that's on Jesus through the Holy Spirit. So here he's, he's, he's starting to talk about Jesus connecting to God and the Spirit of God. Now the Spirit of God, and when you read verse 35, I just want to say, wow, did he really say that? Did he really say that? I wonder what everybody around him was thinking when he said that. Have you read what he said? The Father loves the Son. Tell me about the transition there. He hasn't referred to Jesus as the Son of God until right then. He's referred to him as anointed Messiah. Mashiach means to smear with oil. It means the anointed one. Christos is from Creo. It means to anoint. So the very word Messiah, Mashiach, means the anointed one. And he's already confessed in that, that he's anointed. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit. He speaks from God. But now he shifts to a whole different declaration. The Father loves the Son, and has placed everything in His hands. He's now talking about the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. You know, the conversation I've had with uh, a couple of the, with uh, Russ and Sammy, my Muslim buddies, I hope they think of me as their Christian buddy, was this whole thing. 
about Jesus being the Son of God. And it said Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. They kept trying to harp on that. And, and I said, he most certainly did. Especially in Mark 14, 62, where he says, I am. And they said, oh, let's kill him. He's just made himself equal with God. And, and I was just sharing those things with him. And here, though, John, John Baptist, this is like right here. This is not even close to when Jesus is hung on a cross for the, for the sacrifice of sins. He is, while he's doing ministry, is telling people that Jesus is the Son of God. The Father loves the Son. He's given everything into his hands. And watch verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Said at the start, the identity of Jesus is the prevailing question. And, and this is a statement, I didn't even read it or re- reference it Sunday morning, but I had it in my notes. Few logically thinking people will deny the existence of the historical Jesus of Nazareth. Very few people. Maybe Richard, Richard Dawkins would deny it, but that's just because he's, he's, he needs Jesus. But there's all kinds of historical evidences beyond the Bible of Jesus. All kinds. In Roman history, I mean, he, the, 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 the eruption of the, of the followers of Jesus gets people's attention, and that's why in the first two or three hundred years of the church's existence, Rome tried to snuff it out through Christians into the Colosseum to, to lions and, and martyred many, many people because it was like, oh, it's okay when they're just camped out in Jerusalem. Now when they're showing up in Rome and they're showing up in our area and they're bringing in this different faith and this different religion, not that they had much of a religion, but they got their attention and, and there's writings all about that. But there's all kinds of historical evidence that this person, Jesus of Nazareth, really did live in Israel. The question is, who is he really? Who is he really? I, um, I remember sharing with a waitress years ago at Waffle House. I don't even remember who the evangelist was that I went to eat at Waffle House. and was just talking. And she said something about she was about to get married and and uh, I said, well, congratulations. And I says, uh, when's this going to happen? And I, somehow we got to church, and she said, well, I don't go to church much. And I asked her if uh, she was a, a Christian. She said, yes. I said, really? <laughs> I didn't want to say, really? I said, really? You're, yeah. I said, isn't it crazy that the Son of God, a spirit being in heaven eternal, comes inside of a virgin and takes on human flesh and, and lives a life like we face on this earth as God in flesh. I said, isn't that, isn't that crazy? She says, yeah, I guess, yeah. I says, and he died on the cross for our sins? Isn't that, isn't that, that's just crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. And he rose again the, three days later. I said, you believe that? And she said, yes. I said, and that doesn't require any more of you. That, the, that, that's the most preposterous story that anyone could come up with. Unless it's true. 
And if it's true, can you be casual about that? I think what John the Baptist was saying, you can't be casual about that. You've got to accept it, and you've re- rejected it. You bring yourself under the wrath of God because you re- it's not that God got angry with you or anything like that. You, re- you rejected his son. You rejected his offer of redemption. He went through all of that to save him. You said, no. And that puts judgment. Jesus didn't. Jesus said, I didn't, come, I didn't come into the world to judge people. He said that. I didn't come into the world to condemn people. And the reason he said that, he said, because they're already condemned. They're already under self-condemnation. I'm, I'm not going to pile in. He even told the woman taking adultery, he says, you know, where are your accusers? She says, no, man, no, nobody. He says, neither do I condemn you. So I don't, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to tell you that you can have a different life. You can live a different life. Your sins are forgiven. Just go and don't live like that anymore. And that's what he offers people. That is the gospel that we get to share with people. It is a fantastic story. And I like the word crazy. It is a crazy story. That is crazy. I don't even know why we're not crazy about that crazy story. Because if it's true... My goodness, what? That's, that's just wild to think that God did that and, and we're not telling anybody about it. We're not like, let me tell you the most crazy story you'll ever hear. Or just simply say, let me tell you what the Lord has done in my life. And he says that the gospel is the power of God into salvation. That the simplicity of the gospel, the foolishness of preaching, is how people get saved. Just by telling them this story, it has power in it. Would you stand with me?